Welcome to Behavioral Science Uncovered, the podcast about behavioral science and how it's made. Hello, everyone. This is BS Uncovered. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Lee, and today we are very lucky to have Dr. Ned Augenblick from Berkeley House with us. Hello, Ned. Pleasure to have you here. Hi. <laughs> Happy to be here. And today, so we will talk about the story behind your paper, Belief Movement, Uncertainty Reduction and Rational Updating. For people who have not read this paper yet, so could you give like a brief summary of what the paper is about? Yeah, I guess a relatively straightforward question. So the basic idea is imagine that you were observing a person's beliefs about an event over time. And let's just make it simple and say it's just a simple binary event. And so you're saying, you know, what's the likelihood that, you know, a Republican wins the presidential election? Or what's the likelihood the stock market goes up tomorrow? Or what's the likelihood that, you know, a certain football team wins a match? And so imagine that over time you're watching this person and their beliefs are bouncing up and down. So they start at 60% and then something happens and it jumps to 70 and then something else happens and then that causes it to jump to 50. And so these beliefs are bouncing up and down over time as they're learning information. And then the basic question is sooner or later those beliefs end at zero or one. And the basic question is there's some way that we can say that that person is bouncing around too much or too little, even if we don't know anything about what they're watching. So that's to say you observe this person's beliefs, but let's say you don't really know enough about football or the stock market or the presidential election to make sure that you know what the objectively right beliefs are. And then, so the research question is, can we figure out if this person's kind of bouncing around too much in some way, or can we test that? And I think you might think that there's no way to do it. And so as an example, imagine that a person is bouncing between 5%, 95%, 5%, 95%, they keep bouncing up and down. That kind of seems weird because they seem very certain that the thing's not going to happen and then very certain it is going to happen and then very certain it's not going to happen. And there's something that doesn't quite feel right about that. But that being said, you know, we can create a data generating process and a set of signals that would cause a person to have that belief path or that belief stream. And in fact, for any belief stream that you can come up with, we can create some data generating process and some signals that make that rationalize it. So from that point of view, there's no belief stream other than ones that go from the poles, like zero to one, that you could say that person isn't Bayesian. On the flip side, when you have this thing that goes from 5% to 95% back and forth, you can imagine that that's got to be pretty rare. Uh, when you're saying that something's 5% likely, you're saying that it's pretty unlikely that it's going to be one. When you say that it's 95% likely, you're saying it is very likely to be one. And those things feel kind of contradictory. And so from that point of view, at, at some point, you might be able to say, that's kind of a weird stream that I just saw. And so the point of the paper is to come up with a, a simple, as it turns out, a pretty simple test that allows you to say, I observe a person's beliefs over time. Let's say I observe that mult over multiple events. And there's some point at which I can say that person seems like they're moving their beliefs too much or too little. And then after we do that and we develop this test, we talk through why it might be that this is a good test, what what connection it has to psychological biases and what psychological biases might cause you to move too much or too little. And then we have an empirical part where we look at data sets that contain information about beliefs 
and we see whether it's actually true or not that people are moving around the right amount or too much or too little. And that's the basic motivation and idea behind the paper. I see. Okay, thanks a lot for the brilliant summary. And I personally, I do feel very interesting when I was reading your paper as well. I found like the thing that you just talked about, like、uh, the bouncing of the beliefs, like how it is like kind of unusual when someone's belief suddenly jumps from five percent to ninety-five percent, and these kind of things. I do find really interesting when I'm reading the paper. And speaking of the paper, as you mentioned, it has a theoretical part and an empirical part in the paper. So for these two parts, did you work on these two parts in like a sequential fashion, or was there like a lot of back and forth between the theory and the data? So most of my papers, as it turns out, normally have a theory part and an empirical part. In terms of this particular paper, you know, the genesis is that in grad school at some point, I was thinking about an idea that was. That had a somewhat of an idea、uh, related. Matt Raven, my co-author, was、uh, simultaneously thinking about something, and then when I came to Berkeley, we started to talk about it. So I can talk about my perception of how things worked, which was I was thinking about prediction markets, how people's beliefs move, which is kind of an empirical fact, looking at beliefs bouncing around a bunch. And then wondering whether there was some test to actually say that they were going around too much, and then that led to the theory. And then we had a conversation that happened, unfortunately, a very long time ago, which is I think 2000, December of 2011, I'm guessing, was our first conversation, where we were talking about the presidential election at that point. And again, just noticing that there were so many,、uh, the empirical fact, which is it seems as if there are so many news stories coming in every day about how this candidate is good or not good. People are constantly switching their perspective about who's going to win based on what felt like data that wasn't that meaningful. And so that's an empirical fact. But then trying to ask the theoretical question: Is there some way that you can say because we don't really know? When it comes to politics, what signals are truly meaningful? We don't know the data generating process. Is there some way that you can actually make a statement about that's the theory? So then that shifted to theory, and we worked on the theory for a long time. Once that theory was done and we had a test, then we shifted back to the empirical. So I would say it was it was a constant interplay between them, I guess. And I'd say with most theory projects. Probably most people who start a theory project have some empirical story, at least in mind, or some observation that they want to capture in the in a story, which is why they then go to theory. And then I think for me, at least, it's very common to then go back and actually see if that the theory that I created was actually created something that is testable empirically. Ah,、oh, I see. So the idea goes all way way back to the grad school phase, and then it takes. And、oh, okay, that's really interesting. That's a long time. It's、oh. a sad. It's a it's a sad fact that I take a long time on papers. Matt takes a long time on papers. The combination of us, we take a long time. And you know, there's a reason I think the birth of a study procrastination. So, which is yeah, <laughs> yeah. Talking about this, like the writing process of this paper. Like from the idea, like you just talked about the genesis of this idea to the write up to your final draft. How, like you just mentioned that there's like it's a very long process. Can you also tell us like how many drafts did you write for this paper? I mean, I can check on my computer. I'm gonna guess a hundred, maybe more. You know, in in terms of research, there are people who do different research in different ways. I would say that Matthew and I are both on the side of. 
trying, spending too much time potentially, depending on how you think about it, trying to get things right. And both of us spend a very long time writing. And, you know, I spend a really long time writing every sentence and every word and then editing and then realizing six months later when we came up with some theoretical result that wasn't exactly right. And then rewriting and rewriting and rewriting. And it's not good necessarily. I don't know if I would say that other people should do it, but it just turns out to be the way that both of us work. And so that combination then, you know, sometimes on a project, you have a person who pushes you a little bit more to, which is good, just get stuff down and start working on something. Whereas um, if if both people are in some sense really want to make every sentence count and care a lot about each sentence, it, it takes a long time. And you know, it's just different styles of doing research. You know, as a result, I, I, I write fewer papers, which is, that's the cost and the benefit of it. Oh, and I guess, I guess you asked me a more specific question, which is how, you know, how the thing evolved, which was we had a, we very quickly had a first draft, probably within six months, but that draft essentially probably has very little to do with the, the paper that currently exists. And so we had this draft, I presented it, that was pretty quick, but then everything got slowed down with all the details of each individual piece. And the kind of difficulty of this paper, I think, is that it's a statistical test that we're proposing. And and we're also dealing with, to some extent, just mathematical concepts. And so given that, you know, it's not necessarily our expertise, we're not econometricians. And so then you have this you have to, you have this part, which is the statistical part, coming up with a test and making statistical statements, which we weren't used to. Then you have the part, which I think both of us were more used to, which is modeling the psychological biases and getting results, but that took a while. Then you have the part of proving that your test is a good test from a statistical standpoint and doing numerical simulations, getting that right and figuring out how to do that because we weren't used to it took a while. Then you have this empirical part, which is making sure identification's right, if your data's good, and that took a long part. So it's, I think this paper took a long time because each of the components is uh, requires a lot of effort. And then in addition, we weren't that good at those parts sometimes. You know, we had to learn a lot about statistics and how to write kind of an econometrics paper, which neither of us was terribly used to. And that, that certainly prolonged the paper. So you're saying like you're, you and Matthew, you both also have been learning a lot of things, at least like about econometrics during the process of writing this paper. To some extent, yeah. I mean, and again, just pre-associating uh, about, you know, if this is, you know, just about how we do research is, I think there's a, you know, another big cost and benefit here in doing research is basically the, you can choose to do stuff which is way outside what you're used to. And that's a lot of fun. It's exciting because you get to learn a lot, but it really slows things down because you're not an expert in that area. And sometimes it's a lot easier just to become, you know, there's a set of people who what they do is they become a, an expert in one very particular area and keep pumping out papers in that area. And that's specialization, which is a great thing. You can imagine get a little boring. And if you're trying to just kind of come up with, you know, it's not like we knew this paper was going to go in this direction, but if you're trying to come up with, I don't want to say weirder stuff, but stuff that, that's a little bit outside what you're used to, you're going to end up encroaching on literatures that you didn't know existed. And then you're going to have to learn how to understand those literatures. And it's going to take a long time. 
And so that's the, the reason that a lot of people specialize. And it's certainly the cost if you try to go outside what you're comfortable with or used to. Thank you Nina, for sharing this. And so right now, well, maybe let's go back to the paper. And so when I was reading your paper, I can't help like but notice like your data selection in the empirical part is like really, really interesting. I remember that there are like three data sets you talk about. The one is like the experts forecast. And there's also like an algorithm to predict sports match results. And there's a, another one data set like from online bettings. Can you talk to us like how did you select those data sets? Yeah, so in, in some sense, it's kind of a, a was a natural. So what happened was, so again, talking to the story of how we came up with it, we first came up with the idea of uh, talking through this was due to the presidential election and looking at prediction markets and how they were moving over time. So that then the first data set that we were, were looking at were prediction markets. And that turned out that prediction markets also had a bunch of data on, in fact, much richer data in some sense on sporting events. So that's how we got into that data set, the betting market data set. From that, whenever I present the paper, I say to people, if you know any data sets that have beliefs in them, then let us know and we'd love to see them. That came, that created those two other data sets, one of which is from a colleague of mine, Don Moore, who is doing this thing called the Good Judgment Project, where they asked this large panel of people their beliefs over time about geopolitical events. And then another came from a suggestion from Devin Pope, who's at Chicago, who just said, hey, you know, you could look at these algorithms and here's an example of one. And so we looked at that. And then some other people, which didn't make it to the paper just because it started to get too long, suggested, you know, you could look at uh, forecasters who do rain forecast and probabilities and how those change over time. I know that there's macro people who have a uh, macro predictions over inflation and beliefs over those. That didn't make it to the paper either. Another person suggested finance markets. There's a particular issue with finance markets. And so then that actually became a, a different paper. So effectively, we started with the idea with prediction markets. We went to the theory. We went back to prediction markets. We realized that the theory applied to basically any data set that had beliefs in it. And then we went searching for those data sets. I see. Oh, yeah. So me personally, I find like the, the algorithm, the data set to be like particularly interesting because like in UK, in the soccer match, we also have these kind of things over here. And as the match goes, they always like update the winning probability of one team. And it just seems to me that they never got it like quite right. Like only like. <laughs> yep. So Yeah. It, there are a lot of questions that come up during doing this project, partially because, like I said, it was in an area that, that maybe is new and also maybe we, we weren't used to. But one of those questions was that idea of does an algorithm need in some sense, if it's working on averages, to be Bayesian in some sense? So if you said, all I'm going to do, the simplest algorithm would be just to say, I'm going to look at any situation that was in any game that has this score at this time, I'm going to associate it with the average probability of past games that have that score at that time. And it's an interesting question about whether that is in some sense has to be a Bayesian model, because it kind of makes sense the way you would do that. And in fact, the, the answer is it doesn't have to be. And so... So it's an interesting question, which we never really got into, which is if you're using an algorithm to predict probabilities, to what extent that algorithm, even if it's well calibrated, might not necessarily be Bayesian. And I, too, look at those probabilities, although now I would suggest to you, as I do, is the betting markets are much better. If you go to if you're watching any soccer match and you go to 
like a site like the one we use, which is Betfair, and you watch those odds, those will change over time. And they're actually, I think, much better because they take potentially information into account that the algorithm is not taking into account. Yes, I agree with you on this. And thank you for this. And just speaking of this, speaking of like the findings you have in the paper, both like theoretically and also empirically, were there any findings that particularly surprised you in this context? Yeah, admittedly, the main theoretical result I wouldn't have necessarily thought was true. So, you know, the basic idea is we have this measure of movement, which is very simple. It's just the sum of the squared deviations over time of a path. And then we have this result, which basically just says the average of that has to relate, in fact, equal to the uncertainty that you start with. So basically, the more uncertainty you start with, the more, the longer these paths can be measured in square deviations. Once you realize that it's true, it's extremely obvious that it's true and can be proven very, very quickly. But admittedly, prior to starting, I would not have guessed that that was true. An immediate implication of that is that you don't even have to average over paths. You can look at one path and there's a certain amount of movement where you can say that path is really irregular. No matter what the data generating process is, there's no data generating process that would produce a path that long more than 5% of the time. I wouldn't have thought that you could get that. Then you get into the results of the psychological biases. And to me, I learned a lot. I guess that must be surprising. I learned a lot. I mean, the results must have surprised me if I learned a lot about how to think about the different psychological biases and how they're related to each other. So that was surprising. And then from an empirical standpoint, I think the surprising part was the whole motivation of the paper was this idea that it seems as if these betting markets are bouncing around way too much. And actually, as it turns out, now there are not enough, I think, independent observations in politics to really know, to, to make a solid claim one way or the other. Still, they're not anywhere near as bad as I thought that they would be, even for the small amount of data. And then for sports, they're actually very, very good. And so I was pretty surprised at how, I guess, efficient the market seems to be or how much something to the effect of the market prices imply something like market beliefs. And those market beliefs seem to follow the laws of, uh, of Bayesian updating. That was surprising. I was not as surprised that individuals and our individual data set overreact. And so that was more what I expected. And then on the algorithmic, it turns out that the algorithm isn't perfect. And I somehow had this expectation that machine learning or using averaging would create a very appropriate belief curve on average. And in fact, that there seemed to be some problems with it. And so that was surprising. So in fact, I guess I would say there were a lot of things that I learned along the way, which might have been why it, it took so long to write the paper. That has now shared with us like the, all the interesting, a lot of interesting findings he has in the paper. And he has also been talking about like what kind of obstacles he has been going through during the writing process of the paper. So now can I ask you like, so out of all the things you have mentioned by now, what would you say was the most challenging aspect of this project? I mean, I think I mentioned it before, but certainly I think the most challenging for me was shifting from what I was used to in previous projects, which is having decent economic intuition of how things should go, which is you give me a model of a person and their behavior, and I'm not that bad at figuring out where that might go. When it comes to statistics and proving 
the test is optimal, which we don't do, but trying to prove something like that, or trying to understand the, the limiting distribution of a test, that stuff was just not what I was used to doing. And so it was challenging to try to understand, I guess, statistics. Like, I never really understood the central limit theorem that well. I kind of understood it. I understand it much more now. Never really understood exactly what a violation was or what it would cause in small samples. I understand that a little bit better now. So I think it was the most challenging aspect was trying to become knowledgeable about a literature that, you know, I wasn't necessarily that familiar with. It was certainly the hardest part. As you saying, like the learning process about the statistical part was like the hardest part. And I, when I was yeah. reading this paper, I do feel like so the last paper I read that you, you wrote was like the restart paper in 2019 about the, the unpleasant task. I do feel like this paper is entirely entirely different to the paper that I read before. And I was quite surprised like how you can like write the papers in like two completely not really like not completely different contexts, but like two completely different styles of the papers, like saying so, you know, that one, the 2019 one is like, was like more, more behavioral experimental style. And this one is like, when I was reading, I do feel like this is more like an econometrics paper. I was also quite surprised by how many papers, how many different kind of papers you can write as well. So. Yeah, this is the trade-off though, right? It's like, I don't write that many papers and then you can write slightly more different style of papers, but that's, I don't write many. <laughs> and, and the ones that I write seem to take forever to do. So yeah, I, good, good or bad, I don't know. I mean, for me, it was, like I said, it's great because you learn a lot about something new, but it was, it's in some sense challenging to try to write such different papers. Yeah. Okay. So about the paper, just like with the benefit of hindsight right now, is there anything you have done differently in, the, in this project? Oh man. I mean, I don't know how to say, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, I think when you're working on a theory paper, I guess if you're working on any paper, the amount of time that you spend on dead ends or stuff that, and this was particular in this project, I think it's because of Matthew having, which I appreciate, having the view of, you know, you really shouldn't, anything that's bothering you about a result. So a lot of times you'll have a result and you mostly get why it works, but you don't completely get it. And you just have a little bit of fuzziness about what would happen if you change something or exactly why the thing worked, that you should really try to figure that out. And that's kind of a pain a lot of the times. And so what that did was push us into, I remember I spent months learning information theory, which effectively became a footnote in the paper or spending a huge amount of time trying to prove a result about a certain limit. And that is also a footnote in the paper. And that must have taken another six weeks. And so there are these results that you feel like you have to understand. And a lot of times what you understand about them is that they're not actually as important as you thought they were. But you needed to go down this rabbit hole in order to get there. And so I don't know how to say it. It's like, am I happy I did it? I know a lot more about information theory, I guess. And that's great. But I certainly spent a long time learning about something that didn't really end up in the paper. I don't know if I'd call that a regret as much as hindsight. When you see all the dead ends that you went through, you kind of wish that somehow you had seen the right path. But I don't know if you can do that. Sometimes you just got to put in the hard work and go down all those dead ends before you end up finding the path that really works in the paper. Yeah, 
I guess we all need to go through this kind of process by putting in hard work and sometimes we reach the dead end and then coming back to find the way. And I'm just glad that you make it through right now. And so. Yeah, I mean, I said this before to grad students. I think the hard part about being a, I think the hard part about being a grad student is that all you see when you're a grad student is the finished product, which often looks perfect. It seems super obvious and it looks like such a simplistic idea because the person has gone through all these dead ends. They figured out the path, which is the easiest way to explain it, the easiest way to let you know. You don't see the struggle. And then as a result, you think, gee, I could have come up with that idea. That's such a simple, easy idea. And then you go through the process of actually doing a paper and it's extraordinarily painful and hard. And then as a result of that, you think, you know, I'm not good at this or, or this is, you know, I thought this would be so easy. And so there's something deceptive, I think, about not deceptive, but something you get the wrong impression by just seeing the final product of the paper because it's so simple and so clear because the person has worked really hard to make it simple and clear. But you don't realize how much effort came into that clarity. I get to create that clarity. I see. Okay. Thank you so much, Ned, for sharing this with us. Personally, I feel like I really enjoyed this conversation. So, And now we just have one question left. And you also sort of mentioned this before. And so last question is, do you have a piece of advice for researchers interested in working on this topic? And what do you see as the next steps in this research agenda? I guess I'd say that there are broad paths forward and then more specific paths. Like specific paths, it seems to me that broadly speaking, the idea of looking at people's beliefs, I think it's becoming much more common, maybe not as common as I would have thought, but understanding what people believe about the world and events about the world and how those beliefs change over time with information and whether people are reacting, overreacting. I think that's become a much richer area of research, but I actually don't think outside the lab there's as much data as you would hope about tracking people's beliefs over time and seeing what types of things they're getting right and what types of things they're getting wrong. And so the idea of not just this methodology, this paper, but zeroing in on beliefs as a, as an object of interest is something that I think is happening and, and should happen more. In terms of the more broad agenda, I think the broad agenda is saying rather than maybe coming up with Sometimes it's nice to look at the current model and rather than criticizing it based on some edge case, not just this model, but any model, trying to figure out real tests of what the model's saying and subtle conclusions of models that once you see them are kind of staring you in the face. And I think it really helps people understand the model better. And that doesn't, you know, I'm not, it's not like I think that the Bayesian model is wrong, but it is, I think our paper helps point people to what it is really assuming. And so a lot of times people will say people have rational expectations. That's pretty straightforward. And then once they see our result, they think maybe we're assuming too much because the result seems pretty strong. And in fact, all we're assuming is rational expectations because rational expectations is actually an extremely strong assumption. So I think really digging into what seems like a pretty some pretty simple assumptions in economics actually have pretty 
important implications and trying to tease those out is, is pretty useful. So I guess, I don't know. Yeah, that's what I would say. Okay, now, thanks again for agreeing to do this and also for all the insights you share with us today. I really feel like I learned a lot from this. And actually today is actually like the New Year Eve of the lunar calendar. So I'd like to wish you a happy new year. And uh, Oh, thank you very much. Happy yeah. new year to you. I uh, hope you can enjoy, hope you, this year can be smooth to you. And uh, this is BS Uncovered. I'm Lee. Thanks for tuning in and see you next time.